You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. next thing is important, very important. This might be the most important thing you hear all day, in fact. Last night I was playing Mario Kart uh, with my wife and with Kevin and Janae Burchett, and um, then Rocky and Chet appeared in our Mario Kart, and I was here to shame Chet in front of everyone for stealing first place from me in the last two seconds of the round. But he's not here, so I'm just going to keep this on the podcast so he's shamed online forever. And uh, that was important. Thank you for listening. All right, we can go home now. Uh, he's what? We, he, he was. He, he stole it from me in the last second. It was very annoying. Um, <laughs> okay, who's got a prayer card on him? Anybody? 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 Good. We're off to a good start here. Uh, today we are preaching on the... We are preaching on our Friday prayer, and I always want to make sure I get the wording specific. If you don't have one of these 1208 prayer initiative cards, please grab it, put it on your fridge, in your car, wherever you're going to see it, at 1208 every day, or midnight if you're still awake at that time. Pray for 1208 on whatever day it is. And we are preaching our way through these prayer initiatives, and today's is that we might reach 10 families bring 10 new families into this church who are committed here, lead 10 people to salvation, and baptize 10 people. Now, we've already baptized one person this year, so that was cool. If you're interested in being baptized, talk to me as well. But I want to give you the theological long game as to why this is, because I know a lot of times today uh, we don't even know what the Great Commission is. According to statistics, a lot of people these days are not aware that the Great Commission is a thing. It's a phrase outside of their wheelhouse. And essentially, the Great Commission is Jesus, after he is resurrected, he sends out his disciples into all the world to baptize people, to save people, to do the work of the Holy Spirit as they do ministry, and to see the kingdom of God grow. We phrase it up with a few words here at 1208. It's called in Jackson as it is in heaven. Because that's what we're doing. So to help you understand why this is important, outside of the general, yeah, get your friends saved, uh, outside of the general, yeah, bring people away from hell, things like that, I want to give you the longer game as to what's going on here. So in the beginning, yeah, the really long game. We're going all the way back, I know. This is, this is, you've really got to ground a lot of themes that you preach on right at the start of Genesis, because that lays the foundation for where a lot of things go. But in the beginning, there is just God and humans, and they are in God's presence. It's his holy temple, and it's called the Garden of Eden. And Eden is a sacred place where God dwells with the humans that he has created. The rest of the world is untamed. It has not been taken over. But if you know anything about temples, the idea is that's the place where heaven and earth intersect. So when you see um, in ancient times uh, where God chooses a sacred place on the earth for his presence to be, you're supposed to be thinking that when you walk into that place, you're also walking into a heavenly temple. 
like we're just a shadow of the real thing, but the spiritual world and the physical world have intersected in this spot. If you know anything about the tabernacle in the Bible, there was uh, the Ark of the Covenant, right? And that's not like God's inside of that thing, like in Indiana Jones, where you open it and, you know, the thing comes out and kills you. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant is God's seat. It's a throne. He's sitting on it. There are two cherubim statues on both sides. Why? Because in the real heavenly space, there are cherubim on the sides of God protecting him. And so the things that have been made for this holy space for God to dwell in on earth is like heaven and earth intersecting in one spot. In fact, it's possible that the Bible even talks about uh, the tabernacle as the center of the earth, as though heaven is like directly above coming straight down to this spot. God's throne is, is spatially located in the same exact spot as, as Jerusalem. So with that in mind, when we look at the Genesis story, we see that this is God's temple. This is where he lives. Because in ancient stories, ancient creation stories, when a God rests somewhere, Sabbaths somewhere, he actually invades that space. So when God rests on the seventh day, he is invading Eden, and this is his special space. And you see that because God's just walking around it. Remember that? Adam and Eve, when they know they're in trouble, they actually like try to physically hide from God because they hear his footsteps coming toward them. They know what he looks like. They know what he sounds like. They know who he is. And they have such an intimate relationship with him that they know the sound of his footsteps. That's me and my family. I can tell if Beckett is awake or Jericho is awake because if it's Beckett, it's, you know, and if it's Jericho, it's trying to sneak around. Am I going to get caught? Things like that. Or if it's Jody, and I can tell if she's mad at me or happy with me, you know? <laughs> this is the loving kind of intimate relationship our family has that you can hear footsteps and know who they are. That's how close they are to Jesus in the Garden of Eden, that they know him. I said Jesus. It, but, you know, I, I don't have time for this whole theology. Anyway, it's God. God, Jesus, same person, right? Okay. Um, they live in that space, but there are other spiritual beings in that space. How do we know? Well, because it's God's sacred temple, and where God is, his heavenly hosts are also. So if God is in heaven with actual cherubim surrounding him, and we are on earth and we've made up these like statues of cherubim to remind us of what's on the other side, well, the Garden of Eden is like next level. We know that because there's kind of this angelic figure watching over the tree of knowledge of good and bad. Now, in ancient cultures, or even in your Bible, there's something called a seraphim. Seraphim means fiery serpent. So apparently, some angels can actually be serpentine-like. Therefore, it's not that shocking to me that here's this sacred tree, and there's something outside of it that's probably supposed to protect it, and it looks serpent-like, and it's in God's heavenly space on the earth, as you would think such a thing would be. And Eve walks over to it, and has a conversation with this spiritual being that the Bible's later going to look back and say that was Satan. They have this conversation with Satan, who seems to possibly be like on the inn at this time, but he convinces Adam and Eve, instead of to worship God, to worship him as God. To take, instead of God's knowledge of good and evil, to take 
his idea of good and evil. Here's the fruit. Take it. God told you you couldn't have this. What's the big deal? Take it. Instead of pursuing God in the way that he speaks and his instructions and getting wisdom in the way that God wants us to have it, because eventually God would have given us wisdom, right? He doesn't want us to be dumb. God eventually would have given us all this, but instead we took it and we grabbed it and we took it for ourselves. That is a theme that continues to go on through Genesis. Abraham and Sarah should have pursued just God's wisdom to have their son, but they didn't trust him, so they took and they grabbed their maidservant and found their own way. Taking and grabbing, taking and grabbing, going about our own way instead of following God. When we do that, we fall into sin and we elevate Satan's kingdom. So Satan goes from this figure, this divine being of sorts, within God's heavenly space on the earth, he goes from that to really being elevated over humanity. Hebrews is going to refer to him as something like the Lord of death. Paul is going to refer to him as the little g God of this world. Satan himself is going to go up to Jesus and tempt him. You see, all the kingdoms of the world, those are in my power. You want them? Worship me. I'll give it to you. That's the whole thing that humans have fallen into since the very beginning. You want the earth? Satan is offering it. Or you can follow God's wisdom and get it a different way. Through crucifixion, through resurrection. Because it's the meek who inherit the earth. Not the power hungry, not those that worship Satan. And anyone who owns the earth through satanic rites in this age will lose it entirely in the next age. Where the first become last, the power hungry become woeful as those who have made themselves a sacrifice to follow God and to embrace persecution in this age, those go on to the immortal, everlasting earth that is to come, where things are perfect and power is righteous and wisdom is full and bodies live forever. See, that was always God's plan. If we would have just followed him and lived in Eden, we would have had access to a different tree called the tree of life. And we could have eaten that forever and lived forever while being in God's presence. But instead, we split the world in half. Where Satan now took a new kind of power that he didn't seem to have before. He has now got a power of death. And because humans sin, the consequence for their sin is to not have access to the tree of life. And now humans die too. And since death belongs with Satan, we then are sent to the underworld where Satan is. That's the Old Testament portrait of how things work. In the Old Testament, they just believed everybody went to the underworld. They didn't necessarily had hope that you might go to heaven if you follow God, but they weren't sure about it until Jesus. So when Jesus comes along, he's trying to get God's mission back on track. He doesn't just say, well, God messed up and it didn't work out and humans failed us and just forget about it. We're just going to burn this whole place up and we're all going to get out of here if you follow me. No, Jesus instead is like, okay, God said his judgment day is coming where everybody is going to have to be held account to their sins. Christians, non-Christians, 
Anybody. Nobody escapes the day of judgment. And on that day, God's going to finally fix what he meant to have fixed in the first place. He is not just letting hell, uh, heaven go to, not letting earth go to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> that was a lot of different spatial locations. He is not just letting earth go and burn and forget about it. God will have his way. Eventually, humans were supposed to leave Eden and cultivate the rest of the earth to look like Eden. That is where the Bible ends. Eventually, we are supposed to leave this building and cultivate the rest of Jackson to look like the sacredness of God's presence. And the day of judgment is the day where God puts that in force in whole. He comes and he shakes the world, the Bible says. And the only things that are still standing on that day are the things that should have carried on into the new creation. I want this church to carry on to the new creation. I want this old radio factory and shopping center back in the day to have been redeemed by what we've done here to last into the new creation and maybe a big old cherry blossom tree growing right in the middle of it. I don't know. That's the way we should be thinking. We are bringing God's kingdom into the rest of creation. That's what we were supposed to do. And those who followed God throughout the Bible were doing just that. They were supposed to bring the fullness of heaven into creation. So when Jesus comes, he puts people back on track. He doesn't change the mission. He just focuses the mission. Jesus sees that humans have been doing things wrong forever. So Jesus comes and shows humans the right way to live. Jesus saw that the old covenant where people were trying to live the right way but could never get it right wasn't working. So Jesus came and gave us a new covenant where he puts his Holy Spirit in us to actually make us be able to live right. The old covenant was just works and efforts. People didn't always have the Holy Spirit if they followed God. But the new covenant is Christians are anointed with the Holy Spirit. He comes and takes up residence inside of them lives in them, and we become sacred space. We become Eden. We become the temple. Michael Heiser says that if you could see the whole world from a spiritual perspective, it would be very, very dark, and there'd be these little torches of light walking throughout it. That would be you. That would be Christians. Walking into new areas and lighting them up. That's why the Bible calls you ambassadors. Because you don't live just here. You live in heaven. And ambassadors represent the country from where they're from. And so when you go into places, you're representing heaven. Heaven should be shining through, through you. People should look at your customs, your culture, you as a person, you and your fruit, you and your spiritual gifts, and say, we don't have that here in Jackson. What is that that you're carrying? Oh, I come from another place called heaven. And these are the kinds of things that go with heaven. Do you need prayer? Are you sick? Want to see healing? Someone dealing with demons? You want to see deliverance? Are you tired of being stuck in that addiction? Do you want to see fruit for once come in your life? These are the kinds of things that the ambassadors and citizens of heaven bring to the rest of the world to call them into the fullness of what is coming. We're a glimpse of the perfection that's on its way. And that's not really what the church is known for these days. 
In fact, more often than not, the church is usually saying things like, well, we all fail, we all screw up, don't worry about it, and, and we're all just going to be messy, and it's no big deal. Whereas the Bible's portrait was, yeah, we do screw up, and we're still going to continue to screw up, but we are chiseling things out to become more and more heavenly. Paul talks about salvation as something you maintain. Maintaining means growing. You get in your garage and you, you got to fix the car. Not me. It's not a good idea with me. But I fix other things. No, I don't. I'm not good at fixing things. My wife doesn't even let me fix things because I break them more, so it's fine. Um, that's what salvation should be like, though. Maintaining, fixing, equipping, growing, putting on more and more of the perfection that is to come that people might see it. And if you want the kingdom of heaven to grow... If you want it to expand to the masses, then you're going to have to do something that Martin Luther King talked about. This was, this was a little different because Martin Luther King was, was trying to face segregation, um, segregation and racism. But he always had a plan. He was going to love his enemies in order to make his enemies change their minds and join his side. So that his movement would then go on to bring more people into his movement rather than push people away. That rather than shunning people, you're a racist and, and that's the end of the conversation and you're just on your way to a horrible place, you know, things like that. He instead would say, you can bomb our houses, you can hurt us, you can persecute us, you can beat us up in the midnight hour, but whatever you do, our capacity to love you will be higher than your capacity to hate us. I'm paraphrasing. That's essentially the mentality that he went with to grow his army of trying to stop segregation by converting his opponents to join him through love, through the cross. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came and grew his army. How? By dying on a cross, because things like that will wake you up. You can suffer. You can make me suffer. You can hang me on a cross. You can drive nails through my hands. You can leave me out here to bleed. You can stick a spear in my corpse. You can do all those things, but my capacity to love you and forgive you is going to be so much greater than your capacity to hate me and kill me. And it's because Jesus did that that you're in this room today. That over the course of thousands of years, despite how bad Christianity has been throughout that time, the story of radical love continues to win out that you would be in this room because you witnessed it and you saw it and it warmed your heart. And that's what Jesus is trying to cultivate, because what he did on the cross was heavenly. What he did in life was heavenly. Heaven poured out of him everywhere he went. You know, there's no demons in heaven. Psh, kick the demon out. You know, there's no sickness in heaven. Heal the sickness. And if we want to see God's kingdom grow, then it's not just going to be the good things that we do in Jackson. It's not just going to be the buildings that we cultivate with God's presence. It's not just going to be the rules that we changed for issues of justice, because God is a just God. 
It's not just going to be all those different kinds of things in our efforts, but it's going to be because we're winning souls over through our ability to suffer. That people might see heaven in us, and as ambassadors and citizens, they might say, I want that. They might go from that to claim allegiance to Jesus. Not just the micro kind of Christianity where we see people say a prayer like it's a, a magical incantation that suddenly my life is completely changed forever after that and I can do whatever I want after that. That's the kind of Christianity we've preached for too long. This is baptism allegiance. That's part of the way that baptism was viewed in the Bible. It was seen as a cleansing of self. It was seen as like the old world of before the flood being wiped out to create space for uh, the person to rise out of the flood, the Noahs. But it was also seen as like a, a call to die to this world and claim allegiance to heaven, God's kingdom, and live out God's kingdom here on this planet right now as we wait for God to come and fix the planet in full, to make all the earth look like Eden. That's the call. For way too long, we've defined pistis. It's this Greek word for faith. For way too long, we've defined pistis as, I think I'm saved, therefore I am saved. That Christianity is nothing more than believing Jesus is real. I got to tell you, I've met a really, uh, a lot of really, really, Poor images of Christianity in people who do believe that Jesus was real. But the strong portraits I've caught are in those who understand pistis and all the avenues that it means. That it's not just faith, it's, it's allegiance. That word has so many different overtones, even just a simple faithfulness. You are saved by your faithfulness to Christ. You are saved by your allegiance to Christ. You are saved by your allegiance to the kingdom of heaven where Christ is king. That's his country. And as we bring people into that, that they would be baptized into allegiance, they would be baptized into faithfulness, they would be baptized into the fullness of what pistis means, then we can actually rise up and change Jackson. Then we can actually increase the people in this building, not just with other church shoppers that want to stop by and see what 12 awaits all about, but with people who live right across the street. Me and Mark were just talking about this before service even started. If we start up a, a, a secondary kind of weeknight type thing that we've been talking about. A few weeks ago, we had you all take surveys, talked about things like a dinner church or children's ministry. How can we ensure that whatever we start reaches those people and those people and those people and those people? Not trying to bring in people from other churches. How do we go right across the street? How do we cultivate the lives who don't know Jesus, that they would walk into the fullness of what he's offering them? How can we be ambassadors of 1208 Greenwood Avenue to bring people to see the temple at work in each one of us, to catch a glimpse of Eden, to catch a glimpse of heaven? To do that, we believe that we need some committed families here. People who are already Christian, though we'll take, of course, anybody, any families. But then we also need to find people who are unsaved. 
who need to come to Christ and disciple them. And that's a long process. That always doesn't happen overnight. A lot of people have stories where, like, it was that one day where something changed. But for a lot of people, it's a journey. But they come in, and they may not know who Jesus is, but over the course of, like, a year or so, something flips. It's what it was for C.S. Lewis. He was struggling with the Christianity conversation for so, so long, and then one day he's like, I'm not sure when it happened. All I know is I got on a bus, and when I got off the bus, I was a Christian. (laughs) But it wasn't just that one moment. I mean, he had to be pulled in by the Spirit over time to that moment. But we need to see the kingdom of heaven grow by winning over our friends, by winning over our enemies, winning over people in all different spaces outside of Christianity. And that can be messy. You need to win over the people that don't look like you, that don't act like you, that don't match the way you think. You need to expect that they're not going to just change their mind right away. Discipleship is going to take time for them to recognize what works and what doesn't. There have been times where I've discipled people where uh, I've known them for months, and then months in I find out there's like a a crucial disconnect (laughs) between what the gospel is and um, between the way that they're living. And they literally just have no clue that the way in which they've been living is so out of sync. And I've just got to find like a gentle way to be like, actually, the gospel calls us to this. Uh, How can I help you walk into that direction? Because this is a a pretty crucial way in which we image heaven. That's slow discipleship. Heaven doesn't always happen quickly. It takes time. It takes practice. But we want to see Jackson change. We want to see this room change. And we want by the end of this year, see 10 new families, 10 new baptisms, 10 new people come to Christ. Originally, we had said something like three. We're like, eh, let's not lowball God. <laughs> Ten feels like it's lowballing God. He's the one who saves people, after all. Yeah, we continue to send the message out. The Bible also shows a glimpse that the Holy Spirit will warm people's hearts and ears to actually hear and feel it if He wants them to cultivate that, if they're ready for it. Let's take a minute as we're closing out here to pray. And I want you to go to Jesus in your mind. You can imagine him or you can just slow yourself down and try to listen. Create a space for the Holy Spirit to speak. There's just one question I want you to ask. Jesus, who in my life have you been trying to get through to with the gospel right now? If every single one of you can hear one person, then this room doubles. Just one person, who in my life have you already been trying to get through to right now?
so that I can join you in that effort. One person. I'm going to play just a few minutes of music while you do that. <laughs> 